Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, The Boundless Compassion of God, with a message entitled, Prayer, Despair, and Hope. So turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 to 6, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. We all pray. We're all made in the image of God, and so we all pray. Of course, some pray to idols and some pray to the one true God. Some pray only in times of distress, and others make it a discipline in their lives in which prayer dominates everything they do. But we all pray. The problem with prayer is that prayer, like every other human activity, is tainted and twisted by the fall and our inherent sin nature. And so some people pray to feed their narcissism and pride, and others pray to a deity that looks remarkably like themselves, hoping to manipulate that deity. But others confess their sins and acknowledge that only God's ways are just. Prayer, like everything else we do, is filled with depravity and sin, but also it can be because of a pure desire for God, but we pray. I know, as I've said, there are people who rarely pray. Something seems to dry up inside of them. Perhaps it's disappointment with the way God has brought matters into their lives. You know, sometimes they're angry with God, and sometimes, you know, they've lost focus of what life is all about. We've already noticed that as the storm was raging and the pagan sailors were praying, Jonah was asleep in the boat. He's the only one not praying. And then, rather than joining the sailors in prayer or informing the sailors of the one true God to whom they must pray, Jonah simply says, look, you know, this storm has you know, come because of my rebellion to the one true God. So you want to throw me into the ocean. And then his anger is going to be abated. So he has no prayer for mercy and no prayer of repentance. Indeed, there's no prayer at all. And then we have to imagine something the book of Jonah doesn't actually mention. Jonah's in the water, and I don't think by the time the fish swallowed him that the sailors were there to witness it. You know, they were long gone, and how long did Jonah stay in the water again? We're not told. You know, I once met a man who told me his story. He survived a small plane crash, plane crash that was into the ocean, and he swam for 18 hours until he made it to land. It was an incredible story. But the book of Jonah is silent about some details. Jonah is in the ocean, and I would think he expects to die. Now, my friend who spent all that time swimming for land told me that at one point in time, he he was thinking of giving up. He was tired and in despair, and he remembers asking himself, I mean, how do I do this now? I mean, do I just stop swimming and let myself go? That's an interesting thought. You know, we don't know if Jonah thought that way, but his prayer, as we'll see, does mention his despair. But we do know that there's something terrifying about the ocean. Now, there's a well-known incident from the Second World War. It was July 28, 1945, when the USS Indianapolis, sailing from Guam, was hit by a Japanese torpedo. A great many of the men died in the explosion, but still, a great many were left in the water. And some estimates believe that 150 men in all were eaten by the sharks, as the sharks literally had a feeding frenzy. I can't imagine the terror of such a matter. When one's left in the ocean, it's not just the fear of drowning that one has to contend with. Now then, Jonah 1.17 says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. That is, it was the Lord himself who directed the fish and appointed it for this purpose, 
and the fish, in effect, saves Jonah's life. Then from what follows, I would have to expect that Jonah fully expects to die, but then he must have awakened to find himself not only in a terrifying environment, but also he finds himself able to breathe. He's alive and continues to live. And I have to imagine it must have felt like being entombed alive. And and I have to imagine he struggled with claustrophobia and must have fought to keep the panic at bay. And with that, for the first time in the book of Jonah, chapter 2, verse 1, we read, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. What a marvelous breakthrough. You know, it's like prayer in a foxhole. You know, in this way, the experience of being entombed in the fish is grace. It's grace because the fish, strangely enough, has saved his life, but the fish is the agent of a much greater grace. Jonah is finally seeking the Lord. And this point is the turning point in the book, and not to put too great of an emphasis on it, and yet we must pause and know that such a moment could also be a turning point for us. You know, sometimes a crisis is the very thing that God sends so that we might finally run to him rather than running from him. But as I've said, prayer is fraught not only with longings for God, it's also fraught with our own sin nature. And what we're going to do is try to understand this prayer, what it meant for Jonah, and what it means for us. So let's start with verse 2, which in one verse really does summarize everything that Jonah is going to pray. Jonah 2 verse 2 begins, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. So let's start with that phrase, out of the belly of Sheol I cried. Jonah's praying inside the belly of the fish, and he calls his dwelling place the belly of Sheol. Now, Sheol is a Hebrew word that signifies the place of the dead. See, the question's often asked, what did the ancient Hebrews actually think about Sheol? How did they imagine the dwelling of the dead? You know, one answer can be found in Psalm 88, 2-7. It says, let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. And by the way, let me stop there and say that it could mean that his life is drawing near to death. But let's keep reading. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You've put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep, Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Now here clearly, Sheol represents being cut off from God's hand, and it exists. Well, the psalmist doesn't know where, but he knows that the place of the dead is in the regions that are dark and deep, and also the places where God remembers our sin, and his wrath lies heavy upon me, he says. And that's what Jonah is experiencing. Although he's alive, it really doesn't matter whether he's alive or dead. His experience at this point in time is exactly like what he perceives must be the experience of those who have gone to Sheol. Now, in most cases, when we read about Sheol in the Old Testament, we find it a place for the unrighteous dead. You know, that, for instance, is the case in Isaiah 38, verse 18. It says, speaking to God, for Sheol does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. See, in this case, there's very little difference between the Old Testament concept of Sheol and the New Testament teaching on hell. 
You know, some of you might remember that in Dante's work on hell, he pictures a sign fixed over the entrance of hell which says, Abandon hope, all you who enter here. And that's exactly what we read in Isaiah. Those who go down to the pit of Sheol have no reason to hope, he says, that God will ever be faithful to them. He will not, not now, not ever. God becomes their permanent enemy. And then Isaiah 14, 9 to 11 presents us with a fascinating picture of the king of Babylon's death. Listen to what it says. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you, all who are leaders of the earth. It raises from their thrones all who are kings of the nations. All of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we are. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your harps, maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. It's horrifying. All that I've ever gained is lost. All my glory is now in shame. I I who experienced success, a success so great that the world feared me, am now brought down to nothing. I have no status in Sheol. No one thinks of what I've accomplished while I was alive. Everything I fought for, everything I achieved, are all as if I had achieved nothing. Nothing is left to me. I'm forgotten and abandoned. Listen, just so you hear this, this is horrifying. I need to stop here and make a plea. If you're giving no thought about the life to come and are concentrating only on this life, please understand this life, usually under most circumstances, lasts 70 to 95 years. Eternity never ends. The years march on. Ten years, a century, a millennium, and more, and still you've hardly begun. Stretching before you is an endless horizon that never ceases. I need to sound that trumpet in your ear. You need to flee from the coming wrath. You need to abandon a self-serving life, and you need to cry to Christ to save you. You've got to shudder in horror at the thought of the place of the unrighteous dead. Christ is a great Savior. Seek him. See, Jonah felt in the belly of the fish as if he was in Sheol. You have to wonder whether at the beginning he wondered if he were alive and therefore should have hope, or whether he was dead and therefore should abandon all hope. You know, at the outset, he might have thought it didn't matter. He feels he's in Sheol when he's entered the belly of the fish. What terror. So grateful for those who listen, view, read, and support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Your encouragement confirms that people are being impacted through the trustworthy teaching of the Bible. Just a couple recent notes we received. I'm so thankful for teaching which emphasizes both the free offer of the gospel and the urgent need for godly living in response to the gospel. And another, I find your teaching is helping me grow in my faith. And for me, you are an essential service please keep on teaching the Bible. Thank you for joining us in ministry. This is why you matter. Your partnership ensures that Canadians from all generations coast to coast can grow in faith, understand the gospel, and access trustworthy Bible teaching. And don't forget, this month we celebrate our monthly partners and launch our new monthly partner, 1119 Fellowship, which we invite you to join today. For more information, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or call us at 1-800-663-2425. But Jonah is not dead. He's alive. Psalm 86, 13. 
for great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. That's exactly what Jonah says. It felt as if he was indeed in Sheol, and yet he was not. I cried, he said. I called out to the Lord. I remembered Yahweh, the great and awesome God. And then comes that marvelous moment. Jonah said, you heard my voice. Well, you have to wonder how Jonah was aware that God heard him. Did God give him a sign of his presence? Well, we're not told, but it must have dawned on Jonah that while he's in the fish, he finds he's breathing. He, he becomes aware of his body and miraculously, he discovers he is alive. He may have concluded that this was miraculous and that his horrifying experience nonetheless was still a sign of God's favor toward him. Jonah 2 verse 2, while it is a summary of everything Jonah prays, also reminds us that we need to pray and call upon God while we are still alive. The dead will not praise him. The dead will not cry out to him for mercy. We have now to repent and to come to God through the mercy of Christ. You know, those who imagine for themselves that that everyone goes to a happy place when they die, well, they're deluded at best. They are deceived. Sheol is in the depths, and in many ways, it is like Jonah's fish. Life carries on. Jesus said, their worm does not die, but the fire is not quenched. That clearly means that for those in Sheol, they wish that they could cease to exist, but God has willed it that they will continue to exist. They will be unable to cease to exist, and yet Sheol, with its horrors, will also never cease to exist. Let me repeat, while you're in the land of the living, utilize your time wisely. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways, and the unrighteous man his steps, and let him or her turn to the Lord. Pray to God, seek his forgiveness, confess your sins, cling to the only source of mercy, which is the cross of our Lord Jesus. You know, in the first part of Jonah chapter 2 and verse 2, we see the prophet going down to the belly of the fish where he prays and where he knows that God has heard his voice. And then in verses 3 to 4, he expresses both a, you know, a kind of contrition and at the same time, a confidence in God's deliverance. Jonah 2 verses 3 and 4 says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. You know, it might be that the most important part of these two verses are the, are the very first line, for you cast me into the deep. It's not the sailors who threw me overboard, says Jonah. God did. God is sovereign, and in his sovereign arrangement of all events, it was he who cast Jonah into the deep, into the heart of the sea. It was Martin Luther who pointed out that Jonah does not say, the waves and billows of the sea went over me. Rather, he says, it was all your waves and your billows that passed over me. Every single wave, every mouthful of seawater, all of that was God's seawater. It's the language that expresses that it was God who so arranged matters that Jonah was in exactly the place where God determined he should be. Now, this language might be either terrifying or, in a strange way, a reason for hope. You know, I have a memory of my childhood, and I'm still surprised how clearly I remember it. I was a rebellious kid, yet my parents faithfully took me to church. And I remember a German hymn we used to sing, and it, even as a child, made a very profound impact on my life. We would sing, and this is an approximate translation, but we'd sing, In the merciful hollow of your hand lies my weak heart. 
But I misunderstood the words. You know, in German, the word for weak and the word for black is, is very closely aligned. And, and that was an image that constantly played in my imagination. See, I knew quite well that my heart was deeply blackened and blighted by sin. It wasn't just weak, but overcome by sin. And I knew that my darkly sinful heart lay in the hollow of God's hand. And yet, was it not also true that my life lay in the hand of a God who was merciful? See, that idea plagued me and and caused me to wonder. And yet, as a child, I continued to rebel against that very hand that held me. See, I think Jonah would understand my sentiment. I was in the heart of the sea, he says, and yet it was your sea, your waves, your billows. But then in verse 4, we see the combination of both despair and hope. I've been driven from your sight, says Jonah. Or he might have said, you know, given what has happened up to this point, it was you who drove me from your presence. You know, I started this adventure running from you, and now I've found it was you who drove me to the edge of Sheol. And when the prophet Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations, he's writing out of agony. You know, Jerusalem had been defeated by Babylon, and the walls of the city had been breached. The Babylonians had broken through. The dead were everywhere. The temple had been broken down and burnt. And all of this, says Jeremiah, is because the people sinned and would not repent. And reflecting on the horror, in chapter 2 of the book, Jeremiah uses words like, The Lord has swallowed up without mercy. And the Lord has bent his bow against us and treated us as his enemy. And the Lord has laid us in ruins. It's a a cry of despair of people whose sins have finally found them out. And yet in the next chapter, Jeremiah writes, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. See, Lamentations is both a cry of horrible pain and despair as well as the cry of hope. That the same God who raised his hand to punish them is also the God who is determined to be merciful to his people. And so Jonah, knowing that God had driven him to a place in which he thought he was in Sheol, yet he, he has a thought. God has not abandoned him. He's still alive. There would yet be a day in his future that he would journey to Jerusalem and look upon the temple of God and join in with the worshipers and bow with gladness before the great and awesome God. The sun would shine again, and he envisioned himself once more as one of God's faithful people, and Jonah clung to that hope. Let's continue to read his prayer in verses 5 and 6. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And we need to clarify what Jonah is speaking about. You know, I've been arguing that when Jonah said that he had gone down to the belly of Sheol, that the belly of the fish was for him like the belly of Sheol. But, and I need to make this point that the majority of what Jonah is describing in this prayer is not his experience in the fish. Rather, it's his experience in the ocean before the fish swallowed him. He remembers that he was drowning. The sea enveloped him. He was without escape. When he says the waters closed in on him, the Hebrew says that the waters engulfed him to his soul. He was now sinking. He had gone under the waves. The weeds had wrapped about him from the bottom of the ocean. They were seaweeds. He was sinking, he said, to the very bottom of the sea, for he speaks of the roots of the mountains. He's drifting toward the seabed. This is the land he'd never seen before, but it is the land of death. 
Now, here's the amazing thing about the line, yet you brought up my life from the pit. That can only refer to the time the fish actually swallowed him and he was alive in the stomach. It's a strange way. The fish is his salvation. God had retrieved him from a hopeless situation by reaching down to him and appointing the fish. Again, we're left to wonder how it could be that the fish that swallowed him would be the agent of mercy. And so this prayer of salvation is a prayer uttered in the fish, that dark, horrible, claustrophobic cavern, that place of deliverance. And he knew it. You know, God appoints means whereby he calls men and women to reconsider their ways. You know, in my own life, it was a near-fatal traffic accident that caused me to finally repent and surrender my life to Christ. You know, if today you're going through a very difficult experience, don't curse the difficulties. Instead, realistically assess them. There is a reason for despair. You know, something has occurred in, in which you really have rounded a corner and your life has been permanently altered and it looks evil and dark. You need to see the difficulty you're in and honestly, without deceit, come to terms with it. And yet, what if the difficulty was orchestrated by a God who loves you and has sent a fish to swallow you? What if this has caused you to pray for the first time in a long time and seek his face? Given the reality of eternity that awaits you, has this not been grace? See God, find hope. Say, I will yet walk among the throngs of God's people, praising his name in the land of his grace. Pray to God today. Ask him to forgive you and commit your life to him. John, you know, it's in times of greatest distress in my life, I know I spend the most time in prayer. It's the place where I'm assured that the God that brought me to this place can see me through. Yeah, uh, Ben, what a, what a good word that is. Uh, it is true, and uh, we, we need to say that even if uh, the distress that we are under has come as a result of our own sin, uh, God is so good. God is so loving, so merciful. He invites us to come to him, uh, even when it is our own you know, sin and our own rebellion against him that's, that's brought us to this place. God welcomes our prayers, and we ought to always recognize that when we come to him in faith, when we come to him with a sincerely contrite heart, that God will forgive and that God will answer our pleas when we are in his presence. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, The Boundless Compassion of God, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. A donor recently wrote, I decided to give because your ministry is one that can be trusted when it comes to teaching the Bible. It's really that simple. Well, this past month as a ministry, we placed an emphasis upon the critical importance of identifying Bible teaching you can trust. Well, this month, our hope is to reinforce the importance of not only identifying trustworthy teaching, but the importance of sharing those life-changing truths with others. This month, we've placed an emphasis on the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 11 for the purpose of restating our commitment to faithfully obeying the biblical charge to serve with all of our hearts and to teach the Bible with fervor. Our prayer is that you will join us in this effort. Your gifts, your prayers are critical in this day and for this purpose. To offer a gift today or to find out about our new initiative, the 1119 Fellowship, 
visit backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.